Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. I'm sorry, your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and hang up and dial again. If you have made it this far on your phone call, you have been awakened. You have brought yourself out of the dream. You have found the source for your knowledge. Thank you for your phone call. Holy cow. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming. Sorry, I was just on the phone with with these guys. They were just, uh, you know, reassuring me that things were going well. So how are you all? I hope you all are doing really well. Um, it's been, uh, you know, pretty snowy, pretty cold here in Colorado. Uh, it is March. Oh, there's my co-host, Ty, as you all know and love. Uh, you may hear some of my other co-hosts. So welcome back to the show. Um while you're here, you know, please just take a quick moment and like and subscribe uh, on YouTube uh, or even go check out the YouTube videos of these podcasts if you haven't seen them yet. Uh, they're really cool. They add a whole nother uh, dimension to your listening experience. Um, so, yeah, go check that out. YouTube, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page. You can also check us out on our website, mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. There you can find, you know, all sorts of different counseling services from general psychotherapy to sports psychology to uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy to psychedelic integration therapy, um, all sorts of cool services uh, that we offer at MindOp. So go check that out. Go check out the website. That's also the best place for you guys to communicate with me. So I try and make this show as uh, user involved as possible, and I'm constantly asking for feedback and criticism. Uh, so if you have any comments, questions, uh, any ideas, anything you want talked about specifically, any specific guests you want to come on, please give us a shout through our Contact Us page on MindOps.com. Okay, so for this podcast, wherever you found it, whether it's social media, uh, if you found it on social media, please share it and like it. That really does mean the world to us. Um, that is the best way for us to get this podcast out is through you all. So please do us a huge favor. I know I I forget to uh, or, I, or I choose to skip um, liking and subscribing to things. But the more I get into this, the more I know that that really does make a huge difference. It gets the word out. Uh, the best way possible, and it you know costs the least amount of your time, so that's great. So please like and share. Also go to our YouTube, uh, you know, go check out all those. Uh, I made tons and tons of uh, folders on our YouTube page filled with um, all sorts of informational videos on the topics that we talk about on this on the show. Um, so yeah, go check all that out. I'm so glad you guys are here. Thank you so much for investing your time that you cannot get back into listening to this show. It really does mean the world to me, and I do it for you all. Okay, so uh, let's get into it. Um, let's let's start the show. Here we go.
Okay, here we go. Today's good news story comes from thegoodnewsnetwork.org. And the title of the article reads, Airbnb is setting up 100,000 refugees from the Ukraine with free housing. So awesome to see. Um, Yeah, as a sort of a historical uh, sign marker, um, today is uh, March 9th. 2022 and uh, currently uh, there is a war going on between Russia and Ukraine um, so just to kind of earmark that a little bit so provide some context for this um, this good news story so Airbnb this awesome company that you are all, you're all probably uh, familiar with if you haven't used it you've probably heard of it it's just a service that you can sign up for online and uh, rent rooms from people's houses, wherever you go, wherever you travel. And Airbnb has stuff all over the world. So um, getting into this article a little bit, it's talking about how Airbnb.org will offer free short-term housing for up to 100,000 refugees fleeing Ukraine. Um, They have already sent letters across Europe, starting with people in Poland, Germany, Hungary, and Romania, offering support and welcoming refugees within their borders. Um, and promising to work closely with governments to best support the specific needs of each country, including by providing longer-term stays. Um, So, yeah, this is super cool. Um, This is not the first time that Airbnb has done this. So it says, over the past five years, Airbnb have connected more than 54,000 refugees and asylees, including from Syria, Venezuela, and Afghanistan, to temporary housing through Airbnb uh, partners. So, so cool. Um, let's see, they are creating what's called a refugee fund um, that has uh, so far collected donations from more than 4,000 donors uh, to support the work with refugees and asylum seekers worldwide. Uh, if anyone is interested in supporting this initiative, and I think we should all be trying to support uh, initiatives as best we can to support Ukraine. Um, so you can offer free or discounted stays in your own home. Um just go to airbnb.org forward slash help hyphen Ukraine, and you can get involved here as well. Awesome, awesome stuff. How cool would it be if you opened your home to a, uh, you know, to a refugee from Ukraine, and they came, and they were able to tell you so many amazing life stories about their upbringing and their country. Um, I just think that that would be so cool to do. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Good, good news story. Okay, so let's see. What's been on my mind lately? Really, you know, what's been on my mind, I've been going through some really tough uh, medical stuff with, with a ton of body pain, uh, just intense all over my body, and it, it makes every day a little bit harder, um, some days more significantly harder. And, it, you know, I, I'm the first to admit it makes me a lot more irritable, uh, a lot shorter fuse, um, you know, even with self-talk, even with talk towards myself, I, I'm a lot more negative when I'm in a pain state, uh, just because I'm trying to manage the pain and also, you know, have conversations with myself or have conversations with others. And I get impatient because the pain is just unbearable sometimes. So if you've been a victim of my, um, my, uh, state in the last couple months, I apologize if I have, if I've come across as 
uh, short or anything like that with you. I'm really trying not to let the pain get the best of me. Um, but anyway, in the in light of that, where my mind is really trying to be, uh, where it's been lately, is trying to keep a positive attitude each day, trying to find things that really uh, boost my happiness. You know, uh, so much opportunity to do cool, fun things was taken away with COVID. And now that we're starting to come back with the mask mandates being lifted and you know, being able to go out and do more things, I'm really, really trying to fit in as many things as I can these days that make me truly happy. Um, you know, I've been isolated for too long, and it takes effort. You know, it takes effort to find happiness. Happiness, uh, you know, some people say you can't find happiness outside yourself, that it is all contained within, and I do believe that to some extent. I do believe that you can uh, utilize your internal resources to generate happiness just on your own sheer willpower, you know, it, uh, shifting your perspectives or taking a more positive attitude or choosing to seek out beautiful things in your life. Those are internal ways that you can increase your happiness. Um, and it's all little mind tricks that you can do. Um, trying to turn those mind tricks into more automatic more consistent uh, behaviors within my mind. Um, so then, you know, I do also think that you can go out and seek happiness outside of yourself, uh, whether it be, you know, for me, I get a lot of happiness out of going to jiu-jitsu and getting on the mats and, you know, slapping hands with someone and then uh, wrestling. You know, I love it. Um, I just love that kind of uh, human contact and the support and the community and the camaraderie that we get from those things. But, you know, my wife and I go out to the movie, you know, we to the theater. We get happiness doing that. You know, I just went and saw the new Batman movie, which, by the way, is freaking amazing. Uh, I went to go see it with my buddy Jeff, who I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, and I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Robert Pattinson, uh, the new Batman, but I loved the new Batman. It was it was amazing. It was a three hour movie, so you're in for a, a long, uh, long haul. But it is a really, really good rendition of uh, Batman. Um, so to, I got a little sidetracked there. So to get back to my point, um, I think it's within all of our power to find our happiness, whether internal or external. And actually, I take it a step further and say that it is your responsibility, your happiness. It's not anyone else's responsibility to make you happy. And if you think that is true, then that's, that's unfortunate, only because it's going to leave you unhappy a lot of the time. If you're relying on other people or external circumstances, you know, the new raise at work, the new car that I want to get, uh, I'm not going to be happy until I achieve this. Um, those types of uh, attachments um, in regards to your happiness will leave you disappointed, will leave you um, unhappy when you don't achieve those things. And then you'll come to find that when you do achieve the thing, you're happy for a little while and you go right back to being unhappy because you're under the next thing. So the point is, find your happiness don't let your happiness rely on other people or other things. You can utilize other things to increase your happiness, and you should do so. You should go seek those out as much as possible. This life is not meant for us to live and just work and die. This life, this beautiful human experience, this consciousness that we are all taking part in, 
we're meant to have fun. We're meant to be happy. We're meant to experience love and joy and to spread that and to generate it and to spread that. That, I think, is one of our main purposes here in this existence, in this body, you know, in this rendition, this orientation of consciousness. So that's what's really been on my mind is that, number one, if I'm finding myself unhappy, it's probably my fault. And that's not to shame or be hard on myself, but that's just to identify that if I'm the source of the problem, I am also the source of the proper solution. So if I'm unhappy, I need to take a look at why am I unhappy? What are, what are the thoughts that I've been telling myself? What are my perspectives that I've been taking on the events around the world or the events in my life? Am I going out of my way to seek fun and exciting experiences, things that make me happy, new novel things, or things that I've loved to do for a long time? So I think that's really important. And I hope you all out there are finding your own happiness. I wish nothing but the best for you all. Okay, so today's podcast is going to be a great one. I know you all are going to love this. Uh, Today's guest, a good friend of mine, Dr. John Moose. And this is episode 104. So Dr. John, uh, I just call him John throughout the podcast. Um, He is a trauma surgeon. Um, he's familiar with, uh, the idea of, uh, having a crisis of identity. And we go into that in the show. It's uh, a really good, uh, conversation. He's also a father of six and he is the creator of, uh, what is called I am soul surgeon, also creator of dear John MD and creator of green light metamorphosis center. So cool. Um, you can find, uh, Dr. John at Dear John MD on TikTok. You can find him on Instagram, and uh, I will also put his um, his email address, or actually, yeah, his email address in the description. So if you want to reach out to him directly, he said that's okay. Uh, you can also find him at dearjohnmd.com. So great show today. We go over so many cool things. Uh, we talk about the human condition. Um, we talk about this idea that we keep telling ourselves that we're not good enough. We're not good enough yet, right? Not finding that happiness in this moment. And uh, we ask the question, who are we not good enough for? <laughs> who, are we tr- who are we trying to get good enough for? Uh, and it's a, quite an interesting conversation. Um, so, yeah, uh, John and I talk about uh, linkages between Westerns, Western medical science and psychedelic research and uh, Eastern medicine. Um, talk about all sorts of cool stuff addiction recovery uh jiu-jitsu he's new to jiu-jitsu so we got into that um you know i asked him about what his work is like as a trauma surgeon you know I, i'm really interested in that kind of stuff I, I when the surgery channel used to be a thing on tv i used to watch surgeries but now i have to go to youtube and i'm glad they still post surgeries on there but before i i, I ever have any surgery or anything i always look it up and watch what is going to happen throughout the surgical Uh, procedure. So anyway, Dr. John Moose, episode 104. This is going to be an awesome one. So stick around. Okay, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane Lamaster. Today here, we're here for episode number 104 with a very special guest, Dr. John Moose. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks, Shane. 
Yeah, it's really good to see you. I think the last time I saw you was uh, at the training, and that was that was almost a year ago, right? Yeah, that was that was May uh, May earlier this year. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, not not quite a year, but coming up on it pretty soon. Right. Um, well, the first standardized question that I have, uh, and that's it's the only standardized question I have. I ask all my guests the same thing. Um, so the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind. And I'm curious to know when you hear that phrase, conversations with the mind, uh, what comes up for you? Either what comes up in, in visual uh, or memory or, um, you know, in your life philosophy, conversations with the mind. So I'd say that conversations for the mind, um, I get two visuals or two sort of uh, sensations. One is the the constant chatter that I, I deal with. I, I tend to be a very logical, uh, left brain, analytical individual. And oftentimes I have to remind myself to drop into my heart um, and feel and intuit. Um, and the other side is is sort of the, the, the meta um, sensation, the meta feeling of, of the conversations with that greater sense of capital S self, um, you know, speaking to myself, like me as a conduit to source, me as a conduit to spirit and, you know, receiving messages, speaking back and sort of having that dialogue and exchange with something that is bigger than me. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the, the bifurcation that I, that I draw in my mind. Nice. Yeah. And, um, you know, speaking from the heart and speaking from the mind is a, it's a concept that I'm familiar with from my own um, recovery, um, my own path through addiction. And one of the greatest things that my um, longtime sponsor told me was, and it was still very early in, in recovery, and I, this did not make sense at all when he first said it, but he said the, the longest journey you'll ever take is um, 12 inches. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, the longest journey you're ever going to take is from up here uh, in your head down into your heart. And if you can live more from your heart space, um, you're going you're gonna to live a, a better life. You know, it's our, it's our heads that got us into the mess of addiction in the first place. Um, it's our hearts that are going to keep us out of it uh, as long as we can stay, you know, honest with ourselves and with the world. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I still draw lots and lots of lessons from, um, from my time in early recovery and even through my addiction, too. And, um, you know, I know that that's a part of your story, too. Uh, if, I mean, if you don't mind sharing some of that with me and some of that with the audience, you know, um, it can it really I think these kind of stories really help people to who are listening to connect. You know, there's, there's so many people out there struggling with addictions to all sorts of things. And so not just being able to identify it, but to hear other people's stories of how they got through it and improved their lives, I think is super important. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I would say that, you know, I think every individual's struggle through addiction feels very unique and significant. And I think for every individual it is. Um, and there's so many universal truths, right? There's a there's an adage in the rooms of 12 step that you know terminal uniqueness. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you can explain I, what that is real quick. I'm well, here. everyone, everyone, everyone feels like their story is so severe and so significant, and they're the only ones that are broken. And the reality is, is I think when we when we lean into that statement, we start to pull you know pull the veil. We start to realize that we're a lot more alike 
in our thoughts and our processes and our behaviors and, and the motivation of our choices that we're not all so different. You know, when, and what I've come to learn from that is a concept of shared humanity, right? We're, we're all sort of struggling along the line of the human condition. And any human being in a human body is going to be prone to the human condition. So I've heard and, and love the idea of addiction being sort of a, uh, a spectrum, you know, and, and at the most severe or the gravely disabled who are clinically diagnosed with the, the label of an addict. And then somewhere before that spectrum gets too disabling or, or, or um, too much disability is, is sort of everybody that sort of just feels like they're at the mercy of life and its challenges and obstacles. But um, I would say that my, my struggle with addiction without going through a full drunkalogue, which for those that aren't familiar is a, is a recounting of the, of the quote unquote glory days of our drunken behavior. Um, my story of addiction is one of both a substance and uh, behavior. And so my, my behavior of choice was, was sex and I'll explain and my drug of choice was alcohol. And the, the roots of, of those sort of addictive coping strategies really stemmed from sort of developmental childhood experiences, as I understand them. They took root really around high school when I was seeking um, approval and affirmations from, from people and things outside of myself they really took hold, my alcoholism really took hold when I was in a difficult marriage. And I'd say that um, in any marriage, there's no blame on either side, it's a dynamic. And so we, we were in a relationship that was highly uh, volatile and um, not healthy. And throughout all of my life experiences, I've always had this desire and need to, to use sex to use romance, to use uh, women's affection as a way of drawing meaning and significance to myself. And so I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what sex addiction is like, a, you know, it's like um, devious beings and, and, and this sort of um, back alleyway behavior. Yes, it includes that, but it also includes people who consistently look for affairs and fidelity, validation through sex, validation through romance, validation through um, uh, these sort of encounters as a way to boost their self-esteem, boost their masculinity or femininity, boost their, um, their sense of self. But the problem is that, you know, the repercussions of this is I had to lie to a partner, I had to lie to a wife, I had to lie to my children, and that choosing the sex or the encounter as a way to self-soothe continually led to negative consequences in my life. And that's exactly the definition of addiction. Continually choosing a behavior, looking for relief and having repetitive negative consequences. And one of the things I understood about addiction for myself was addiction isn't about the substance. It's not about the behavior. It's about my relationship to that substance or behavior. And so my relationship was, was highly detrimental to my life and that of others. Um, through my you know, encounters with women and through infidelity, through my drinking, um, I've put my community members at risk, I've put my family at risk, and I've put uh, 
my, my wives and partners at risk. I put myself at risk. And it was only until I hit rock bottom, which by the grace of God was somebody reaching out and, and basically pulling my ripcord for me. They reached out to my then wife who was pregnant and said, I had been up in another area of California where I was working for a week and I was out conducting myself like a single bachelor, you know, going out. I had three uh, affairs when I was up there and was drinking um, while I was supposed to be on call for a hospital. I never, one of the things I always want to preface is I never took care of a patient while intoxicated. And again, that wasn't because I made good choices. I honestly feel like it was because I was extremely lucky. Um, I tried to make the best you know, judgment as possible, but impaired thinking is still impaired thinking. So drinking when I'm supposed to be on call for a hospital, I could have been called in at any moment. And fortunately I was not. I, um, I had these affairs, came home and the next day, somebody reached out to my then wife on uh, Facebook and, and said what I was doing. So the next day, um, my wife had reached out to me by text and said, you need to call me immediately. And there's a feeling of pit in your stomach when you know that everything that you know is about to fall apart. And for probably a few days, I clung to the, the hope that I could sort of minimize the damage. I could, I could lie enough. I could admit enough to sort of get by, to scrape by. And those days were hugely traumatizing to her. Um, the, the fragmentation, uh, the dishonesty, the duplicity, all of it. And eventually I got to a point where I realized that I was in way above my head. I needed help. And she sort of forced my hand into going to rehab, which I, you know, chose to go into as well. And in there, I found the time and the help to really own my truth and share my entire truth with her um, and start the, the work of healing and recovery. And that was just over six years ago, a little over six years ago. And I've been sober since. Nice. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Um, I got sober myself out in California. Uh, Well, I did my first 30 days in in Denver, but then uh, did an additional 90 out of Newport Beach. Um, Oh, cool. I love the um, recovery community out in California. It's really strong. Um, I mean, you, you always find... Pockets of uh, good recovery, but also pockets of not so good recovery. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Figure out who, who are the right people to hang out with in those rooms. But you talked about something um, with your addiction that, that hit home to me too. And, and my biggest addiction uh, was alcohol as well. And for you, the way you described it, it was almost like, um, you know, you would lie about the behavior and then you would soothe the behavior, you know, you would soothe the consequences of that feeling with the addiction, which would, you know, cause more issues, you know, and for me with alcohol, I would definitely soothe my suffering with alcohol, but then the alcohol would also become the cause of my suffering the next day. So I'm soothing with the cause of suffering. And that, that just stood out to me as something as, you know, it's, it's insane, right? Um, that's why they, call it insanity with addiction because you're soothing with the thing that is uh, destroying your life and um, there's almost that uh, cognitive dissonance with it where you 
when you're in it, you feel like, you know, the, the thing the, that you're addicted to is the only thing holding you together. Uh, it's the only thing keeping you going. But you're, you're so close to the problem that you're unable to see that it's also the one thing that you're holding on to that is preventing you from moving forward or preventing you from making any progress. So it's a double-edged sword, and it seems uh, you know, very cyclical in that, in that uh, way that you described it. So um, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Yeah, there is a there's a great quote by Julie Holland, who wrote the book Good Chemistry. Phenomenal book. The whole book is about connection. And I her and Rosalind Watts, to me, are like two of the the foremost uh, incredible thinkers in the connectivity space. And I'm really excited, actually, for Brene Brown's because it's all about the Atlas of the Heart. So staying connected to your heart. Um, But she she shared a quote that addiction is so effective because it works almost completely all the time and if you think about it, you you keep going back to this this substance or behavior that makes you feel good you know pretty good for the moment but inevitably it never works which is why we keep sort of going to it or at least i kept going to it to try and help soothe the shame the lack of worth the the you know the criticisms and the judgments that i had that other people's had and it took me going to um, the Hoffman Institute, which is an incredible institute, to really understand what was driving it and, and my core shame belief. And my core shame belief, which stemmed from me being six years old, was that I was not enough. And not a sense like I'm not worthy, but just me in general, my very presence was not enough, which stoked sort of this, this fire per perfectionism for goal-oriented tasks, something tangible to show that I had been there and I had done something. And even my most reckless behavior, you know, just how brazen and how much bravado I brought to it. You know, the reality was that it, it, it took me sort of having all the externalities clipped away for me to start to rely on myself to provide the fuel or the wellspring or the source of energy to know that I am enough. So it's been it's been really interesting, but it's super healing to to hit that bottom and and reckon with the the pain and the you know the, the choices to sit in the consequence of the choices that I created. Yeah, and you you know you talk about another thing that I think a lot of people out there struggling with addiction <clears throat> and maybe not even with addiction too, even depression and other things like that are dealing with this thought of like I'm not enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's different how that's tied up in someone's history and, and it's different for everybody. Sometimes it's tied to parents not showing enough affection. Sometimes it's, it's you know, from accomplishing things and not getting a pat on the back when you do it or getting that positive reinforcement. Other times, um, it seems like that statement comes from out of nowhere, but it's still so powerful. And so I want to ask you um, something that I ended up asking myself when I was, when I too was dealing with this statement and I still deal with it from time to time, especially in a, in the middle of a PhD program, you know, I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm constantly questioning myself and, and, and wondering, you know, am I enough? Uh, do I have enough resilience to make it through this thing? Um, but my sort of counter question for you, when, when you say that, right, when you say, I'm not enough, um, I have to ask, you know, who are you not enough for? 
you know, and I had to ask myself that too, you know, am I not enough for my parents? Am I not enough for other people? Um, you know, so when I ask you that sort of counter question, who are you not enough for? Um, where did that answer lie for you? I, I love that question. I love the way that you reflect it. Um, I've, I've sort of struggled with this a lot, this feeling of an imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And and especially because I, my, I have a highly successful fiance. Um, she's part of an organization called YPO. And so I go to these young presidents organizations with CEOs and VC guys. And, and, and I'm just like, what in the hell am I doing here? I am just like a mutant in this group, <laughs> you know? And, and the reality is, is like, nobody's judging me. I'm the only one sitting there judging myself. And and to answer your question sort of succinctly and, and, and clearly, I have no idea who I'm not enough for. It's my own internalized self-critic that has, that has me judged and compared against everyone else. And, I, and one of the Roosevelt's, I think Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. You know, and when I get out of comparison, I actually am really happy with who I am. I am very content with who I am. I actually love who I am. And, and when, I, when I thought about entering, you know, any of these endeavors, the Dear John, the, the healing space um, with, with my healing center, even being the managing partner with my fiance's uh, real estate brokerage, even getting a, developing a partnership with the restaurant, I've always struggled with this idea that I'm not enough. And then it's also the, the productivity. If I didn't get enough done, you know, then, you know, who am I measuring this to? Mm -hmm. And so a brilliant woman that I work with, um, her name is Kristen Sargent. She works with the shadow and we were talking one time and we came with this beautiful mantra that's worked well for me. And that is what you're doing is enough, you know? And so at any point I could put a time frame on that. So if it's today, it's like what I did today was enough. And if I was planning to get X, Y, and Z done, but then I had to pivot quickly to, to drive a kid, if I had to pivot quickly to, to help my fiance, if I had to pivot quickly to do any of these things, like I have a roof over my head, I have food, I have deep, loving, connected relationships. I have the ability to be able to pivot in a day to do those things. So what I did today was enough. It was significant and it was meaningful. And I don't have to discount it because my expectations are telling me that it wasn't enough. So really, you know, the only person I ever fight with is myself. And when I let go of that and I embrace the fact that how I show up in a space, one of the things I really like to do is I like to be pragmatic and practical. I like to sort of translate difficult information, whether it be from medicine or from spirit or from um, research and in medical literature, any of it. And I like to make it digestible. That to me is uniquely me. Only I can interpret these things this way. So how I show up is, is needed because there's only one version of me. And so that's given me a lot of peace just to know that what I'm doing is enough and that what I bring to any situation is unique because it stems from me. I love that. I love that. And yeah, I constantly, you know, I constantly have to remind myself of that too, that the things that I'm doing are enough, that I as a person am enough. Um, and then I'm, you know, even though I... I strive for uh, being better in a lot of areas. Where I'm at right now is perfect. Uh, just everything has led me to this point. 
And so uh, I kind of want to pivot a little bit um, and, and ask you a question because um, I wanted to bring you on the podcast because I think you have a very unique uh, perspective, uh, one that, that I haven't encountered too often, and that is that you hold um, certainly a, a, a long history of uh, you know, medical training, <clears throat> Western medical training. And um, Western medical training being sort of born out of uh, materialistic type science, right? Uh, where we view the body as, as material and things like that. And then you also, uh, which I think is rare, you also have this whole other side of you that is very spiritual and connected to um, non-physical parts of the human being. And I think that's extremely rare in the medical profession. I don't meet many medical doctors who sort of um, can navigate uh, both of those at the same time. It usually ends up being um, that they have to choose one or the other um, or else their peers shame them or, or um, you know, kick them out of whatever organizations they're in. And so I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned the idea of the human condition before, and uh, that's something that I, I consistently uh, contemplate and think about not just the human condition um, physically, but the human condition holistically. And I, I want to kind of hear from you because uh, because of your perspective, you come from both both sides. I want to know, you know, what does that mean to you, the human condition? And um, maybe also once we can understand what it is, like what do we do with that information? You know, where do we go from here? Yeah, so the human condition to me is, it's sort of rooted out of um, Buddhist philosophy, right? Like one of the one of the four noble truths is that in life there is human suffering. And I would say that um, as human beings and human bodies that we are going to encounter suffering. And another adage that I remember from the rooms of, of AA or SAA, was that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And I love that because at any point you could put an end to your suffering. N- not that it's you know, a flip of a switch, but you can, you can do the work to end your suffering and not that it's going to be comfortable, but that it's gonna be necessary to create a sense of integrity. And I love the word integrity because integrity for me has meant a lot of things. One, when you're, when you're creating a compartmentalized deceptive reality where you sort of keep your duplicitous actions, you have to violate your integrity repeatedly through lies, behaviors, distractions, feigning ignorance, all of the sort of manipulators toolbook or toolbox. And so integrity for me is just sort of speaking truth, but integrity to me also means sort of like a vessel, a ship or an airline. If you violate the integrity, the wholeness of the vessel, it will sink, it will you know, crash. And if you think about, if I think about myself as a fragmented human being who's suffered and fragmented because of traumas and trauma tends to be a dissociative experience where I separate out from my timeline, I separate out from myself to self-protect and to survive. I fragment myself out that part of my integrity is restoring wholeness, which again is, is not always a comfortable endeavor. So with the human condition, sort of knowing these things, the human condition to me, as I, as I understand it, and I like, to th- I like to think about it, is sort of the whole spectrum of, of really addictive behaviors. 
right? And at the, at the least, at the low end of the spectrum is the individual who uh, looks to Netflix to sort of wash off a bad day, maybe, you know, rewards themselves with that really unhealthy dessert, but, you know, like they deserve it. Maybe it's, um, you know, sleeping in and snoozing, right? Just benign stuff, things that don't, don't really matter, but it's contrary to sort of our purpose and meaning. And then you look at the gravely disabled, right? Who are, you know, like myself, I'll use myself as one of the gravely disabled, who are drinking and then driving in the community, who are chasing their shame, you know, uh, by having affairs and looking for other validation, who are then, you know, drinking to blackout, who are then putting themselves and others in danger and have these relationships that are so detrimental to themselves and others that that their suffering begets more suffering. It's just like a nonstop suffer cycle. And I think that the human condition is just sort of this, this spectrum of behaviors that we are going to engage in. There's no illusion that we're not going to engage in some of it at some point. Um, that, reminds, that reminds me that I can make different choices to be more in alignment with my purpose and meaning. And you know, if I want to, you know, come home and, and watch a movie instead of writing another, you know, Q&A answer or spending a little bit more time on my work, like that's okay, because then the work can also become the suffering, right? Then I'm detached from my family. And so there's no right or wrong. It's just about sort of adjusting your sales and, and moving in the direction of what provides the most meaning and value to your life and to the value of others. So there's sort of the, the self-service element and then the service to others element. So that to me is what the human condition sort of it means to me. And I would say that I didn't learn that from medical school. Medical school has taught me a lot of different things. I've learned discipline. I've learned commitment. I've learned how to put my body through hell and back. Um, I've learned how to regulate myself in highly, you know, highly tense situations where people are dying, they're shot, they're hurt, they're wounded. Sort of the externalities of trauma have impacted them. And so those are very valuable things. And I would say that my most detrimental periods in life were also my most atheistic periods in life. I was a Richard Dawkins fan. I was, you know, a, a science is gospel and, and there is no divine, you know, why would anyone think that I'm an atheist? I was just drinking and sort of punishing myself throughout those atheist periods. And when I hit the spot, when, when I had created enough pain in my life and that of others, that suffering gave me the motivation and the humility to be open and curious to something bigger than me, to purpose and meaning and my connection to something other than me. And in that space, I started to embrace the idea of um, authentic, true love, not just sort of the, the romantic love we share with others, but the love that keeps us all connected um, or reminds us that we're all connected together, not that we've ever been separate. Um, there is the piece of the humility to, to accept the fact that there are things that science will never be able to explain. Um, or even honestly, I love awe. I love the sort of the, the, uh, the, uh, the feeling of awe because awe to me perfectly blends both the mystical and the science. So you can measure elements of awe, but like why our hair erects when, we, when we're around these, you know, amazing experiences, a beautiful sunset, the northern lights, you know, fresh snow falling, you know, the smell of, you know, somebody that we're intimately connected to, like all of these things. 
you know, mysticism sort of uh, dances in that area more so than like science and, and measurability. So I would say that sort of my, my hybridizing of my medical experience and then taking my, my suffering and drawing meaning from it has been how I've been able to blend the two um, components and is what has allowed me to sort of understand the human condition in a way that, that I understand it now. Nice. Um, going back to the beginning of what you stated, you said, what is that? Uh, and I love this statement. Um, pain is, uh, pain is guaranteed. Suffering is optional. Yeah. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is, is optional. And I definitely, uh, I definitely think that that's part of the human condition um, and not just physical pain, but emotional pain and mm. psychological pain and spiritual pain, uh, all part of the human condition. And then, you know, especially with addiction, right? Um, but also with lots of endeavors in life, what we gain from suffering, what we gain from going through and moving through suffering and coming out the other end um, can oftentimes shape or, or shift our life in ways that we couldn't have fathomed for the better. And so with that also, you know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners too have a lot of experiences where they've made it through suffering and came out stronger on the other end or, or having had some big realization, you know, going back to that initial statement that suffering is optional. Um, and I agree with that, right? We can, we can choose to uh, wallow in our pain that we're, we're experiencing, or we can, we can choose to use it as a motivator to get us out of the pain. Um, yeah. And that's where I think that statement suffering is optional uh, sort of latches onto is like that choice point that we have uh, between, right. between that. But, you know, I, I'm finding more and more, you know, I don't like welcome suffering necessarily into my life, but <laughs> I also sort of have this understanding that uh, pain and suffering are inevitable. And so when they do come, I try not to like shy away from them or hide from suffering, but instead I, I try and lean into it, not like in a masochistic way, but lean into it a little bit with the understanding of like, there's going to be some learning here, you know, and that this suffering, yeah, it sucks, but it is, it is serving a higher purpose to sort of train my mind or train my body, make it stronger for something bigger that's coming on down the road. So whenever I, I, I encounter suffering these days, uh, that's sort of the, the direction that I, I try and take it. So it's useful to me. And I think I developed that mindset from my athletics and from, especially from my jujitsu, you know, cause when you're, when you in your first few years of jujitsu, you're just, you're suffering all the time. <laughs> you're getting smashed and choked and, and uh, you know, getting your limbs bent in all sorts of weird ways, but through that, you, you gain resiliency and you, and you learn a lot about yourself. So uh, when that suffering comes, I try not to wallow in it and I try and embrace the, uh, the benefits that I know are around the corner. Um, and I think that's part of the human condition too. There's a paper that my friend Lauren wrote that I, I'm gonna send to you and it's, uh, it's, it's just brilliant. And he calls it uh, the sanity of addiction. And he talks about it uh, very similarly to how you talk about it, about this spectrum. I mean, everybody engages in some sort of addictive behavior and has a means of coping with something that they can't uh, handle. And we all have those things. And so he talks about it sort of from this compassionate Buddhist perspective that, you know, people with addictions that we label in our, in our society as addicts, um, 
And then we, we shame them and we put these negative labels on them that we shouldn't be doing that. We should be holding a stance of compassion because we too, if we looked uh, close enough at ourselves, we too would find that we are utilizing substances or behaviors or even addicted to certain thought patterns in order to cope with areas of our life that we're struggling with. So I just love that idea that, you know, addiction is, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it may be an undesirable behavior, but it is something um, that we can normalize and, and generalize across the entire human condition, the entire human species to better understand it. Yeah, I, I love that. I am. Um... It is funny. There's a, there's an, I, I love sayings because I feel like they're so like, well, right, there's, you, you spot it, you got it. You know, and people who are quick to point the finger, you know, which I've been guilty of, I imagine anybody's been guilty of. Usually there's, there's something within another individual that they sort of dislike within themselves. So, you know, like you spot it, you got it. But um, yeah, that's sort of the concept of like, um, Whatever you see in people that you don't like, it's actually a reflection of, of aspects of yourself that you don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the, um, the thing that I always say is, and I, and I do agree, like I, I wish we could sort of shift the, the perspective of certain groups looking at addicts, you know, the, the, the shame-based, you know, it's their choice. They did it to themselves like addiction strategies develop because they were survival strategies that worked at some point. If you look at patterns in general, patterns are these things that we develop, usually they're developmental in, in origin and they serve a purpose and they serve a purpose of getting us through other painful moments. So if you think about, um, I'll take some of my own examples. So for a long time, I couldn't say, honestly, I, I would lose my voice in certain situations. I'd make myself small. And that has origins from my dad's temper. You know, my dad would, would sort of burst. It was frightening. I'd make myself small. I'd try and manipulate the truth to try and figure out a way to, to not be accountable, to not have to face the, the, the consequences of that. And mind you, I love my dad. We have a phenomenal relationship. But as an adult, I would run this pattern, which is automated. There's no choice in it. It's just an automated program. When I'd be in situations where I felt small, I'd go voiceless, I'd freeze, I'd submit. And, and again, I love quotes and I love sayings, but Viktor Frankl says, you know, there's a, there's a space between stimulus and response. And in that space is a choice. And that choice represents your freedom. When we're running automated programs, we are not choosing how we want to respond to the world. We are reacting in an automated way to it. So, so again, looking at addicts and looking at their survival strategies or their maladaptive coping mechanisms, one of the things that always strikes me is, is um, it's a not about condoning the behaviors. Because addicts do all sorts of harmful behaviors. And I've never asked anyone to condone my behaviors. It's about deepening our empathy towards human beings and recognizing that they're there because of sur really survival strategies or lack of resources, or maybe it was their choice. But I, I just refuse to believe that anybody in their life at their most innocent, their most naive, their most openness, their most, you know, the childlike essence says to themselves, I want to grow up to be an addict where I'm harming other people. I'm harming other people, you know, myself. 
I am disconnected from spirit. I'm disconnected from community. I'm disconnected from myself. Like nobody wants to grow up like that. It becomes a choice because it's the least painful choice of many other bad choices. Mm. And so my whole thing, my sort of perspective with, with people in general is I try and stay out of judgment. I try and stay out of criticism because everybody has a story. And unless I know every bit of their story, which I don't, because I've never walked in another individual's shoes, philosophically, not to figure to be, I actually walked in other people's shoes, but, but I've never walked in their life, experienced the things that they've experienced. So if I stay out of judgment and criticism, it will allow me to understand compassionately with empathy, what their experience, or at least try and be curious to an answer that is different than the, the, the automated stereotype or sort of um, story that I create for them. Mm. Yeah. So really hearing them and, and also hearing what they're not saying too, is a, is a great right. thing. Uh, I think for any clinician or, or physician to have is being able to read between the lines, right? Because people will omit. So yeah, really trying to figure out what's going on with someone can be difficult. Um, yeah, uh, so I need to take I need to have us take a real quick break, um, real Great. bio break, and then uh, we'll be right back. Okay, back from a quick break. Um, so I want to um, want to ask you another question, and again, it's it's based off of my knowing that you come from a medical uh, Western medical background, and I I don't, you know, uh, I wish that. You know, a part of me wishes that I could have studied to become a medical doctor. Other parts of me say, no way, that's not for me. I'll stick with the mind here. Um, but for you, with, with that background, and a lot of uh, Western medicine is focused on the body and not so much on the mind, although I do want to ask you your opinion on the mind-body connection. Um, but from your background, I just, I want to get a sense of like, how do you think of the human body? Uh, do you think about it as sort of a machine where our consciousness is, um, maybe filtered through or, um, you know, has presence in, or, you know, is it, is it illusory? Um, is that all we are, you know, how do you think about the human body? Oh, that's a big one. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So the human body to me is just absolutely magnificent. Mm -hmm. When you think that, you know, we, we sort of originate from two cells coming together to become these complex, differentiated, uh, you know, complex system or really a system. Lots of like it. It blows my mind, right? Lots of systems. But not only are we just a set of symptoms, but we're sort of uh, a tool to interact with the environment. And the interface is is bacteria. We host bacteria in our gut, on our skin, on all of our microbiome surfaces, um, fungus, viruses. Like if you actually look at the quantity of bacterial microbial cells, compared to our human cells, we're more microbe than we are human. Um, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard it, you know, described that we're 10 to one microbes to human cells, which I could totally see. So 
that's just sort of us on a on a differentiated cellular level where we have you know cells you know they're called totipotent cells stem cells that differentiate into different parts we have some that go to skin or epidermis some at dermis some that are liver functional hepatocytes some that are splenules some that are lymphocytes you know like they literally differentiate to all these things and that just in and of itself blows my mind so then we look at we look at, or what I, you had mentioned, the mind-body connection. And one of the things I'm constantly sort of surprised about, and then also not surprised about, is the fact that if we go quantum, right? And I, I wish I knew more about quantum theory, but if I know enough to know that if we look at all energy exchanges, energy exchanges and frequencies and waves, and if you break down all of our cells, our cells are made of molecules, atoms, and those atoms communicate via energy. And, and you start to think about all of the, the, the exchanges we have with all other things, all the energetic exchanges we could have. It's no mystery to me that we can have complex downloads from sources of energy all over the the world and the universe and the cosmos. And I love, uh, uh, you know, the grass Tyson, he says, you know, all we are is space dust, right? If you look at the four major elements that we're composed of, I think it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen are the main components of, of space. So, you know, he goes, so we're space dust, which I love that because we feel like we're so different, but the reality is, is that we're all like carbon-based life forms are so similar. But even when we start looking at the other substances that are innate and maybe we, we think don't have consciousness, like they have chemicals and components that emit energy as well. So why couldn't they be exchanging with us and interfacing with us in, comp in a myriad of complex ways? Um, so that's sort of getting into the, the theoretical and, and sort of the depths of, of like quantum theory and how the body is able to interact with our environment. But then when you start adding in things like consciousness, you know, like it gets really wild because then, you know, I believe that taking two books, for example, Besser Vandal quotes the body when uh, the body keeps the score and Gabor Mate and I think Gordon Neufeld, or that might've been the child one, but um, not Gordon Neufeld, but Gabor Mate wrote um, when the body says no are two excellent examples of of how the body holds on to trauma and how the body can release trauma. You know, and I've experienced this firsthand with when I was newly sober and I was boxing and I was training Muay Thai, I would erupt into tears in the middle of fight, like training. I would be training so hard that all of a sudden this grief would hit me and I'd be punching the bag as hard as I can and crying out my sadness. In yoga, when we do hip openers, all of there have been times where I've been doing, you know, a pigeon or some sort of hip opening maneuver, and all of a sudden I am just in tears. Mm -hmm. And it is releasing this grief that's been stored within me. And I don't think that's uncommon. I think that's actually more common for our bodies to, to hold on to these things, which is why psychotherapeutic disciplines like somatic experiencing and Hakomi that that really dig into the body and body workers, even massage, where all of a sudden we could have these, just, these tremendous releases of emotion. Um, and again, what I, what I know from emotionality 
and and our body's responses like these things trigger neuro pathways within us so when we're feeling sad or 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 grief or anger they trigger a set of neurons that create a, a signature a, a neurochemical signature that goes through our body and our body responds like if you break all of these things down they all just energetic exchanges and so so for me again just understanding the body and then understanding how the body can be influenced by all of these these inputs the the physical the emotional the psychological the spiritual the chemical the energetic you know like to me it's just it almost becomes one of those things that's so incomprehensible that i just have to accept it with humility and grace and be like okay you know like let me be as attuned to it as possible and 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 resonate with it in a way that I feel like I'm, I'm synergizing with those frequencies instead of, you know, blocking myself off and, and not being a conduit to receive that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, even science is showing us that the mind and thoughts uh, are, you know, energy transfer mechanisms as well. Um, not only within our own body, you know, when we, <clears throat> when we think negatively about ourselves, it changes the molecular structure of the water molecules in our body and, vice versa when we think positively. So we have this uh, sort of energetic uh, frequency or vibrate and vibration um, traveling within our self and we can impact our own healing processes and, and things like that with that, with the mind. But we also have um, this presence outside of ourself too. You know, they can measure people thinking uh, and, and having brainwave uh, thought patterns and frequencies that leave their skull and go interact out in the universe. And so this is where a lot of that, uh, you know, manifestation um, stuff comes into play, right? Like, uh, like putting positive out into the world will reciprocate positive back to you. And I love how you you talk about, um, you know, the quantum level. That's one of my favorite sort of areas to just explore. And I'm also by no means an expert. Um, but what amazes me the most about the human body, and yes, I love how, and I've explored this through a lot of different psychedelic visions, but exploring the different systems of the body and how the systems communicate with each other and, and work in, in this symbiosis with all the bacteria. And it's, it's just so amazing and mind-blowingly uh, huge, right? It's like an entire universe inside of this skin sack uh, that we, it's a microcosm of what's out there. But what I think amazes me the most about the body and this goes down to the quantum level, um, knowing that, um, you know, most of our cells are empty space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have electrons and protons and neutrons, but, you know, 98% of that atom is what we think of as empty space. We actually don't know if it's empty or not. It could be dark matter in there or whatever, but um, the body's ability to keep itself together, like literally together in its physical form without just dissolving off into, into uh, stardust, right? Like how does, how does our uh, body know to, to stay together, to know to, um, you know, how did all those bacteria communicate and say like, no, we're, we're going to, we're going to stick this out for 80 years together in this community. Um, and we, we're just going to make a commitment that one day we're not going to just all walk off and, and go find something else. Right. Cause then your body dissolves. And I think that's, that's one of the most interesting things to me is like, how, how does this thing know to stay together uh, in the way that it does? 
it, it, it is sort of mind blowing because when you, I, I know exactly what you're referring to, how we are, we're more empty space than we are actually occupied space. Mm-hmm. And it does make you wonder, like, why don't I just dissolve into this door when I walk into it and then just come out the other way? Like, why am I not just merging with other individuals? Um, I don't know. You know, like, it, it's, it's easy to see sort of the, the, uh, the merging phenomenon, if you will. Maybe not, maybe not morphologically, maybe not two people just become one. But the, the merging phenomenon with relational dynamics, with people. Right there, I've found myself in times with in random conversation where the next thing I know, I feel like, and again, these are the mirror neurons in our brain where I'm mirroring the gestures that the other individual is doing, or I'll be in, you know, in Nashville or I'll be at a concert and somebody will start saying y'all, and next thing you know, I'm talking to him saying y'all. You know, I, I don't say y'all, you know, <laughs> but but there's something where you where there is an exchange where all of a sudden when you're connecting with an individual, these mirror neurons are firing off. And we are sort of picking up with what they're, what they're uh, sending us and we're sending back. But it is, it is wild to think that uh, we don't just sort of kind of dissolve off into this, you know, this dust. And I think that there, I don't know, because I haven't reached this level of, of sophistication, but I, I think that there are individuals who do sort of reach that level. I was in the jungles of Peru and sitting ceremony uh, in ayahuasca. And there were two individuals talking about how they had ascended to the fourth, I can't remember which dimension it was, it was the fourth or fifth dimension. And they talked about seeing life as this, like, you know, they could see everything as particles. And one person talked about, you know, taking ayahuasca and, and ascending into the infinite particle. And I was just like, it was beyond my comprehension, but I was like, okay, I understand. But then again, I don't. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's uh, commonly had me thinking. You know, if if you can just level uh, level up your mind enough, then you'll have that ability to tap into it and just be like, okay, today I'm gonna choose to just dissolve, dissolve away, <laughs> and then and then you disappear without a trace, and your family has no idea where you are. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I've commonly thought about that. Uh, and I'm sure it does happen. You know, I've, I've heard stories of uh, really important gurus and things just, you know, one second they're there and the next second, you know, their followers just say like his soul left his body and you could just tell, you know. So I, I do believe in some ways that you can uh, have an impact on on even the, the passing of your soul from, from your body. That's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. I do, you know, I want to, I want to ask you if you're, if you're comfortable sharing, um, you know, maybe some stories of what it, what it has been like in your career as a trauma surgeon. I'm just like so fascinated by, you know, I'm fascinated by the human body and, and our ability to repair the human body and maybe even some of, some of the amazing things that can happen on a surgery table. I've read lots of accounts of, um, you know, out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences from patients on the table under anesthesia, but I've also read accounts from um, doctors, too, who just have witnessed amazing things in their profession, and being that, you know, I don't, I don't get to uh, be in a, in a medical theater like that to, to witness it myself. Uh, in the past, I've had to rely on things like watching uh, the surgery channel. I don't even know if that's, if that's a thing anymore, but it used to be a thing where you could just turn on the TV and 
there'd be a random surgery up, up and you could watch it, um, you know, how they do it. And before any of my surgeries, and I've had, you know, nine knee surgeries and a bicep reattached and, uh, you know, some other surgeries, I, I always go and I watch videos of the surgery before I do it, just so I sort of prep my my body for what's about to come. Um, even if my even if my mind is not uh, currently in the body because of the anesthesia, the body still keeps a score of that trauma that happens in the surgery. And man, uh, I am not looking forward to my full knee replacements that I'll need eventually. <laughs> I've seen those surgeries, and they are they look brutal with uh, sledgehammers and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, have any, do you have any stories you might want to share? Yeah. Um, I, you know, there for a long period of time, you're sort of in training, you know, you're sort of at the mercy of some, somebody else directing your hand and your intuition. And that part initially feels great because somebody's teaching you, they're sort of passing along their wisdom. There becomes a point where it gets frustrating because I would have ideas and I, I would say I'm a highly efficient human being. And, I, and the shorter I can put somebody under anesthesia is the best choice for me, obviously doing it safely. So I really loved when I was on my own and in practice and had the ability to, to do these complex surgeries on my own without anybody, you know, uh, guiding me or, or mentoring me. And there are two specific examples that I absolutely loved because it felt like it was the culmination of all of my mental preparedness, my mental, my mental fitness, my intellectual wisdom, and my, my tactile facility. And I was in a, this was when I was working in a level two trauma center in Modesto. And I had an individual who came in a single gunshot wound um, through his chest and came out his back. And there is a dreaded area of the liver called the retrohepatic uh, cava that is incredibly difficult to access because the liver, the way it sits in the body, sits in the right upper quadrant, it's attached and affixed to the diaphragm. So in order to get to that, that backward space, the space behind the actual liver uh, organ, you have to mobilize and, and sort of dissect it off of the, of the liver. So this individual came in and was dying. A uh, young individual, I think he's like 25 or 26, maybe even 23. And, and I, we ended up putting a tube in his mouth. We, I did a, a thoracotomy in the emergency room. So we just pour betadine quickly over. We slice quickly. We get into the patient's chest and I'm seeing blood everywhere. And I'm looking around, I'm looking around and I can't find an injury. The guy's still dying. We're putting blood in and we're just trying to keep up. So we immediately rushed to the emergency room or the operating room and gown and glove quickly open up his belly. I see no blood in his abdomen. And the hard part about this space is they don't bleed a lot into the abdomen. So there's a little blood around the liver um, because it looked like it nicked part of the liver, but really it's sort of, it sort of aggregates in the chest cavity and aggregates in the, uh, the retroperitoneal space. So I mobilize this liver. I'm, I'm moving. This is a maneuver that you do not do. You, you temporize these patients, you pack them with uh, gauze, and you send them to the interventional radiologist to try and fix the issue. 
But there was something within me, this guy was unstable and was dying. And there was something within me that I took all of my training from working as a liver and pancreas surgeon. And I sort of just committed to the fact that I was going to mobilize this liver as fast as humanly possible and look and see if there was injury in the retrohepatic cava or one of the hepatic veins. And sure enough, I mobilized this thing quickly, moved it over, and I, we were doing maneuvers to keep this guy alive. And, and all of a sudden, I, saw this, I see this tiny little hole in what probably was the right hepatic vein. And I take, I take a stitch, throw it up, tie it off, sort of works, throw another one, tie it off, bleeding stops. So I packed him, packed his chest, blood pressure started to stabilize get him to the intensive care unit. We give him some more blood product, make sure his volume's up, starts to look good. We take him back the next day, re-explore everything. Everything seems dry. Close up his chest, close up his abdomen. Guy's out of the hospital in seven days. And this is somebody who was actively dying. And and that was my, my first major, major surgery that, that I was on my own. I had no backup. I was with uh, in a situation where most patients, the vast majority of patients with that type of injury died. And I remember thinking that sort of the accumulation of, of all of my experience and wisdom, I brought into that moment and like just nailed it. It was just, a, it was an incredible experience. And then another one where I had an individual who rode a motorcycle through um, a fence ended up tearing um, his right iliac vein. Uh, he ended up severing, uh, he had a broken bone and severed uh, one of his arteries in his forearm, multiple injuries to his intestine. Um, and that individual, I had to go in, I had to ligate blood vessels. I had to revascularize his arm. I had to cut out different segments of his intestine. Um, I had to take out, I think I actually had to take out his spleen because his spleen was completely ruptured. And all of this within, I think a three to four hour period, my sort of, my sort of deadline for me was I could, I felt like I could get through any major surgery within four hours. And I usually accomplish that anything after four hours and the blood, the blood starts acting funny and they can't hold a clot and they get too cold and they get enter this terrible uh, triad where they're, the body just basically starts shutting down. So you want to keep the patient warm. You want to make sure they have clotting factor because you're, they're losing blood, but then you're also giving blood back that doesn't have all the components necessary to form a clot. And in that individual, again, I, just working nonstop, highly efficient. You talk about flow state, time just sort of expands and stays still. Your awareness dials in. And I did four hours, which felt like it was probably 15 minutes and ended up saving that individual's lives or that individual's life. And so those stories were interesting to me because they, they really showed me what it was like to be in a flow state, to be guided by, you know, my experience and wisdom, but then trusting my intuition to really, to really hone in and do what was necessary and allowed those people to have, really life ending injuries and go from a place where they were that other individual was out of the hospital in like 10 days. So these people went from, you know, dying to then walking out and to be a part of that was really sort of a, a humbling experience and uh, very affirming to the work I'd put into my education and training. Yeah. It's incredible when you, 
when you reach that um, that perfect balance between skill and challenge, and you reach that flow, um, I've experienced that quite a bit in in a number of different areas in my life. Um, I have a couple more uh, surgery questions for you. If you just uh, if you would, um, <clears throat> I guess, uh, yeah, enlighten me a little bit. So you and I met sort of around uh, around this training for ketamine assisted psychotherapy. And there's definitely a, a crossover, um, or yeah, a crossover between surgery and psychotherapy in this one drug, ketamine. And so um, I know it was initially developed for anesthesia, and I know that it's also on the World Health Organization's essential medicine list. Needs to be carried in every hospital and in most ambulances, and so on and so forth, because of its effectiveness. Um, did you ever utilize uh, ketamine for anesthesia in your practice? Uh, is that still uh, commonly used? I've heard that, uh, you know, in, in the future when I know I'm going to need to get other surgeries that I can actually request uh, that over uh, sort of a morphine-based anesthesia, um, if I have worries about that. Like, how, how does that all work? Yeah, so ketamine is great because it's a dissociative anesthetic, and in most anesthesia components, there's a volatile gas um, that they put over the mask and that's sort of what keeps you under. And then there's an induction agent. And the three typical ones are propofol, atomidate, and uh, ketamine. Ketamine can sort of be giving it at all, you know, for, for the whole sort of procedure. Ketamine is used a lot with uh, children. Um, atomidate has been one of these ones that has sort of gotten in vogue. Propofol and atomidate have gotten in vogue. But I've, I have uh, been in the emergency room where, where children were given ketamine so they could be examined in a way because they were guarding too much and a danger to themselves or where they needed um, limbs reset. And, and it was interesting because the way they give it in a hospital is, is not the way we give it in you know, our ketamine-assisted therapy. They give it at doses that are significantly higher and there's sort of a diminishing return after a certain dose of, of concentration where the, you, you don't really bring back a lot of uh, the value. But because I, you know, the few that I had interacted with were children, it is curious because I didn't see sort of that aha moment, you know, but I've heard anecdotally of individuals coming out of academy experience with sort of a, a, a new awareness um, some insights that they didn't have before and, and had shifted something internally, uh, psychologically, psychically, um, that is unique, you know, and interestingly enough, I actually just read a, a, a paper on postpartum depression that, that they were selectively giving women who were undergoing cesarean ketamine and noticing that they were having extremely low rates of postpartum depression. And we're, we're hypothesizing that women at some point could opt to get ketamine when they're undergoing their cesarean so they could uh, predispose themselves to less risk of postpartum depression, which I've always from like, what an incredible study. You know, we could look at any of these experiences, right? We're, we're taking knives and electrocautery and blunt retractive devices, and we're manipulating the body, we're cutting tissue, we're putting it back together. Now, very traumatic. Very traumatic. Now, if we if we think about how, how can we get the best bang for the buck? Let's give let's make it a moment, right? Let's let's put some sound into the room, let's create, you know, 
holistic healing sounds. Let's, let's dim the lights a little bit before we induct anesthesia. Let's have a moment, maybe set an intention. I, you know, like it sounds like you're like, oh, this is so woo woo, this is whatever. But honestly, we make it a moment, we make it sacred. Mm-hmm. You know, we make it a ritual. I think that there is not enough ritual and, and sort of honoring of the sacred in any of these moments, but we're doing something highly invasive and highly traumatic. And maybe we give somebody ketamine instead and we allow them to sort of roll out of that experience potentially with more resources than when they came in. You know, it's just an idea, but I think that this is sort of, I hope this is the path that we're moving towards where we're trying to integrate in a little bit of the mysticism. So it doesn't have to be so rigid and scientific and I'm only doing what I learned from medical school. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, The last time I got my knee surgeries, uh, I went with a different surgeon. um, And Actually, one of the things I asked him in my initial interview is, uh, you know, what kind of music he likes or what, what kind of music he listens to uh, when he's doing surgery, because that's important to me. Um, just, you know, having a knowledge that my subconscious will still be somehow present in my body during the surgery, even though my conscious mind will be gone. Um, and as soon as he told me he listens to 80s hair, hair metal, uh, I knew he was my doctor, you know, uh, that's, that's A-OK for me. Um, I think my, my other, uh, surgery question is related to some of these reports I've heard of, um, almost like, a, a transfer of the non-physical, a transfer of the spirit of one person into another person via organ transplant. Um, so like stories of people getting a heart transplant and then all of a sudden they wake up and they have an affinity for you know, certain foods that the, the uh, donor was, was uh, really liked or, or has uh, love for a certain type of music that the, that the donor had or some kind of transfer of um, preferences or part of the spiritual self or something like that through uh, donor tissue. Have you heard anything about those? And what do you think about that? I think, so I've speculated a lot on this, right? So we can, I sort of have some ideas from the metaphysical yeah. Like was there was there remnant consciousness, which again, when we're talking about quantum theory and, and stored energies and and you know, like was there something that was transmitted across? Okay, so consciousness could have been stored cellularly in the, yeah. in the organ itself, and then part of that consciousness transferred. Right. So there's you know the tissue itself. There's the fluid because when we have you know if we look at cellular makeup this extracellular matrix and the intracellular fluid is like a gel matrix, you know, and we can store information in gels. And so, so thinking like maybe it was transferred that way. There have been studies in uh, humans and rats where they've taken, um, let me back up. So if you look at the gut microbiome, I'll use the gut microbiome as a, as an example people who are plant-based and people who are predominantly meat-eating carnivores have different gut microbiomes. And if you take somebody that's predominantly meat-eating and possibly overweight and you transplant their microbiome into somebody who is probably plant-eating and and maybe underweight or, or more normal weight, they'll notice, and they did this with rats, that the, the behavior will change just from the gut microbiome transfer. So there's a lot of research into looking at at transferring healthier gut microbiomes into unhealthier individuals to to change their behavior, which you think about, you're like, 
you're taking bacteria and yeah. putting them into a human being and all of a sudden their behavior changes. Yeah, I've, I've uh, actually heard of, and I don't know if this is true, but like fecal transplants. Yeah. Things like that. And that is that how they share uh, people's microbiomes? Yeah. So fecal transplant is actually a, a valid treatment for treatment resistant Clostridium difficile infections, which is an infection of the colon. And when antibiotics fail, which typically um, uh, there's a drug called uh, flagell and vancomycin, when those two fail, the next choice is a fecal transplant. Mm -hmm. And and what it's doing, it's repopulating an infected toxic colon with healthy gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And and so there's part of me that wonders when they do these organ transplants, you know, that you do the whole thing, you sterilize it, you do all the processing, but like, there's got to be some, some remnant pieces, bacteria, microbes, viruses, whatever that, that survived the transfer, which is why people are on steroids. So that, you know, for rejection, antibiotics, antivirals, antifungals, the whole gamut of, of immune modulators once the, the patients are, but we know that antibiotic or that, that microbes can evade these, these chemicals, right. That's antibiotic resistance. We have, you know, treatment resistant, uh, bugs, viruses, whatnot. So there's probably some of that that also gets passed along too. And when they're allowed to proliferate, you know, maybe that sort of imparts a level of behavior or choice that then translates or transmits to the next person. But yeah, I have actually heard that where people's choice or uh, taste buds change people's mm-hmm. preferences on foods change people's behaviors and perspectives change which is really cool. And it's funny because if you sit in the magnitude of what's just happened, it's really remarkable, mm-hmm. but in medicine, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Are, you, are your numbers fine? Your medicine's fine. Tweak this med. Okay. Get out of here. You know, like there's no space for that, which is really sort of magical. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't go beyond that. Um, yeah. I'm just imagining some, some, uh, some odd mix ups, you know, uh, I think there was this, there's this guy on Joe Rogan. His name is uh, what is it? C- CJ or something like that. He's this giant uh, black uh, muscle-bound um, weightlifter, and he his heart failed, and uh, he got a heart transplant from this old uh, Asian woman. And he said when he woke up, he had uh, he had totally different um, sort of outlook on, on life and, and the world. And he thinks it was, it was influenced by this, this new heart that he has. Uh, so quite interesting stuff. Um, so I want to, yeah. And, uh, I definitely know from firsthand, you know, the transfer of even bacteria, uh, on body parts too. I had my very first knee surgery. I had a, uh, a cadaver tendon, uh, put back in my knee and the cadaver tendon had staph infection on it already when they put mm-hmm. it in me. Um, and so, you know, they had to do four more surgeries to take it out and get rid of this infection. It was, you know, I had, it was terrible. I had a pick line. I had this, uh, vacuum pump attached to my knee for oh, yeah. many, many weeks. And, um, you know, that was a jujitsu injury and it, it really made me consider, uh, if I should continue or not, but that was super traumatic for me. Just the whole process of going through the surgeries and, and, um, wrapping my, my mind around, like, what does that mean to me as, as my identity and things like that too. So very, very interested in, in surgery stuff. Um, you have, uh, you have a, what is it called? Um, 
Well, why not, I'll, I'll have you, I'll have you explain it to, to myself and to the audience. Tell me more about um, soul surgeon. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about uh, physical surgery and uh, now we're talking about soul surgery. And when I hear the term soul surgeon, I think of uh, shamans down in the rainforest. Mm -hmm. Now they are literally, you know, pulling up your, your spiritual being and doing um, surgery on your soul to, to heal traumas and things like that. So that's what I think of when I see that, but I want to hear from you because this is a big part of your life. I mean, it's, it's part of your, even your email address is, uh, you know, at I am soul surgeon. So tell me about that. Yeah. So there are a couple sort of unsexy ways to describe it. And then sort of the, the nuanced uh, intuitive interpretations, but, but it stemmed from when I went into being an independent contractor and a, a sole provider that I needed a, a, an entity. And, and so because I'm a medical practitioner, I needed to develop an S corp to conduct my name and business under. And I was thinking of all the names and I thought about my name or I thought about sort of, you know, abstract names and whatnot. And when I sort of sat with and listened to the messages I was receiving, there were a couple things at the time. It's I am soul surgeon is a, a compilation of three key elements. The way I wrote it down, I am is, is sort of one element. So it's an I am with a, with a bar in between soul surgeon and I am is, is the invocation. It is the, it is the calling out and the connecting to something cosmic and divine. It's calling out to source and the, and the, what follows is the affirmation that you are, you are aiming for. So I am could be something highly nurturing and restorative. I am uh, healing. I am human. I am kind. I am compassionate and on. It could also be something very limiting and destructive. I am a loser. I am worthless. I am and whatnot. So the power of the I am to me was about calling in and channeling my best self and how that manifested through my life and how that manifested through my professional uh, pursuits. Soul surgeon, I chose soul because I was at a point in my life where I was less reliant on everything that I knew sort of logically and, and in my brain. And I was more in communion with, with being intuitive, um, trusting my gut instincts, trusting my heart, and in dropping into where life guided me. And it happened to coincide with when I left my academic appointment at USC and I started pursuing locum tenon surgery, which has you going and traveling to anywhere where you're needed for a set period of time and then you're, you're gone. Inevitably, I landed in uh, Modesto, California and I stayed there out, off, of, uh, off of contract but it led me to some great people who were really helpful in my healing and my professional pursuits. They, they trusted my decision-making, my autonomy, and uh, valued me as a human being. And um, really beautiful friendships that I still have. So soul was sort of the, was the aligning with spirit and aligning with my in, intuition, was being in alignment with my head, heart, gut, and with spirit. And then surgeon was an honoring of, of the path that it took to get me there. I was a surgeon. 
I learned many things through surgery, both the painful moments as well as the the wisdom that I had taken and earned and gleaned from that uh, that training, that education and training. And so when I put it together, the I am soul surgeon ended up being the the entity that I worked from as a surgeon. It ended up being um, the construct that I started my my entrepreneurial pursuits and ultimately led me to my healing center, which is now called Greenlight Metamorphosis Center. And, and I am Soul Surgeon still exists as the, as the corporation that Greenlight Metamorphosis Center is doing business as. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been sort of the touchstone of most of the major uh, growth that I've taken from evolving from just being a surgeon to uh, sort of alchemizing my surgical and medical training into something different uh, to, to getting my feet wet, wet with entrepreneurial pursuits and sort of launching these other uh, endeavors that I currently engage in now. I love it. It's, it's almost an incantation, you know, and mm. everybody could take that and use it themselves as well. Like have the I am and then the, the hard, um, you know, line and then whatever you want to manifest as yourself, you know, as your ideal, mm. just put that after that and manifested it as an incantation. Um, you did mention this. Uh, so before the podcast, when you're telling me a little bit about your, your practice in the past, um, you mentioned traumas and harms that you had accrued yourself uh, through that profession. And uh, before we move on from, uh, from talking about your, your past with surgery into uh, some, some other stuff, present and future. I was wondering if you could just you know, tell me a little bit about the traumas and harms that you accrued through that kind of profession. I mean, for me personally, uh, as a psychotherapist, like secondary traumatic stress is a real thing, right? Like I pick mm-hmm. up a lot of uh, secondary trauma from my patients and I have to have a lot of my own um, practices to sort of release that and, and not take that on myself. So there's a lot of trauma and harm that I willingly go into sort of battle uh, with, with these people's psyches and with, with my own to try and um, try and come out the other end. So yeah, what was it like for you? So interestingly enough, um, and I think there's a healthy aspect of this and there's an unhealthy aspect of this. When you, when you work, so intimately with trauma and death, there also is a distance that comes with it. And there were times where I was, where I had the opportunity to sit with people in, in the discussions of, of letting them know they had a loved one that had died and to be with those, those individuals or those families in that space of grief. And that was a, that was a gift. That was an opportunity to sort of sit with people when they're broken and raw and, and know that I couldn't fix anything. I could not fix anything in them, but I could just be with them as a human to human. Don't some doctors avoid uh, actively those conversations? I, yes. And I, I would honest, I would volunteer to be the person to do that many times, even the sharing of bad news, because I felt comfortable sitting with people in their pain because I had been through so much pain. And there were times when I was not ready to do that and I would avoid it. And, and those were missed opportunities. Um, 
but then the, the unhealthy side of that is the distancing, right? You know, one person dies or you're so busy that one person dies and another person gets shot and then they die and then you're on to the next one. It's just like, these are human beings whose life ends, you know, on existence here. And maybe they go on to be, you know, their soul goes back to source and they come back or whatever your philosophy is, or you just die right there and you go straight to the dirt. But those, they had a life and that was terminated abruptly and and to not sort of honor that as a human being caring for that individual again feels it's sort of felt like it was cheapening life there the traumas that i would say the most um significant traumas that i i took from being a doctor and from a surgeon were sort of the ways that i coped with life And when I look at my most self-abusive years, when I drank the most, when I had the most affairs, I was always a practicing surgeon or a medical student or a resident. And I have to believe that there is a corollary because I made the decision to switch from marine biology in my sophomore year to junior year uh, to medicine after uh, a financial discussion with my dad, he made, we discussed the finances of going to uh, Australia. I, was, I got accepted to James Cook University in Australia. I was, I was a dive instructor. I was going to work on the Great Barrier Reef. Like I was psyched. And, and the, the elements that were highlighted of that was that it was going to be too expensive. I was going to have too much debt. I was never going to make enough money. And um, I was going to spend all of my time in a lab. And I didn't love lab work. I liked being around people and sort of outdoors. And I don't know if it would have been that, but that stuck in my consciousness. And I ended up pivoting into medicine. So I got into medicine for what I feel like were not all of the right reasons. I was good at biology. I enjoyed interacting with people. But my motivations for getting into medicine, I don't think were enough to sort of keep me there because there are multiple times throughout my not so much my medical school, but really for residency where I wanted to leave. And I had a lot of people around me who kept telling me I had to keep doing it. I had to keep going, just get to the next point, just get to here so you can make the money, just get to here. So your, you know, your education, your debt aren't, don't mean any, you know, mean nothing. And I sort of listened to everyone along the way, instead of trusting my intuition, which was trying to move away from, from a, an ecosystem that's, that supported the worst version of myself. And part of that was sort of the people I had around me, but I had people around me who supported me, you know, going out and being belligerently drunk, who supported me going out and having casual affairs, who supported my inappropriateness as a resident, sort of exerting my power as a higher level resident on lower interns or residents or medical students, where I would, I would be charming, but inappropriate, you know, saying inappropriate things or inappropriate jokes. And because I was sort of charismatic about it. It, it kind of got passed. But when I look at these people who have gone through Me Too and, and sort of the imbalances of power and the gender dynamics, what I was doing was really fucked up, you know? And, and it took me acknowledging that I used my platform of power for my own self gain. And nobody's ever made an accusation to me, but I hold myself accountable. Like I could have done, I should have done better and I could have done better. And and so when I look back at my life with, with rigorous honesty 
and I look at sort of the ways that I harmed myself and I harmed others. Medicine to me was a, was an, there were a lot of great opportunities, a lot of things I take from it with that have significant value, but there were a lot of moments where I, I, I passed through my shame stage, but I was embarrassed of how I behaved, you know, and I've, I've had the opportunity to apologize to many of the people who I interacted with in inappropriate ways, but looking at the culture I was in, not, but, and looking at the culture I was in, it was not a culture that, that fostered my best version of myself. I'm sure it could have, if I put the effort into it, but there was a lot of, there was a lot of leeway for me to be a really sort of despicable version of myself. And so that's what I mean, sort of the traumas accrued through. It's, it's not only the, the, the impact of dealing with people in trauma and dealing with families and grief, but also sort of the way I showed up in the space and the people around me that supported a version of myself that was less than ideal. And you hear so much about uh, the increased rates of addiction and even suicide in, in uh, medical professions, in counseling professions, in mm. professions like, you know, professional professions like that. So, um, you know, if you don't have healthy ways to deal with bad stress and coping, then you're going to, you know, like we said, like the human condition, you're going to find something to, to help you deal with that uh, and cope with it. Hopefully it's something positive. Um, yeah. Can you can you tell the audience a little bit about uh, your dear John MD, and then uh, I want to switch gears to our last topic after that. Yeah, so dear John MD was it stemmed from a realization. So I when I got sober, I took myself off of all the social media um, because I used social media in the past as a way to connect with women and connect with old people, and then would have affairs, and and it ended up being a tool that um, I used irresponsibly and therefore made irresponsible choices. So part of my sobriety was just getting off all um, social media. So at some point um, when I met my now fiance, we were talking about how I wanted to get on the Instagram or I wanted to open an Instagram account. And I talked with her and she said, that's great because I loved photography and I loved blending photography and written word sort of interpretation using it as symbolism and as metaphor. And what I noticed was I really enjoyed writing. And I was a person who I failed my junior English class. I was not the best writer by uh, uh, school standards. But what I found was a voice um, within myself that I enjoyed sharing in written format. And so I started doing that and people really resonated with how what I was putting out on Instagram. And so then through breath work and sort of my own work with psychedelics, I came to a place where I felt uniquely strong and centered in who I was and in my sense of self. So much so that I felt like my foundation could not be rocked by anybody but myself. And when I was doing my work Trying to, trying to find my purpose and meaning, what kept coming to me is that I want my life to be an invitation for others to bring their messy, complicated lives. And the best way I've found to do that is through sharing my own experience, publicly being accountable, publicly sharing my, my choices, publicly sharing the consequences of those choices, 
and aware where I don't feel like I have to manage my reputation or I don't have to manage the people that know. I've shared this stuff with my kids. I've shared it with my partner. There's not a secret I have that they don't know. Maybe some age appropriate stuff for some of the younger kids, but, but like my family all knows my, my, my choices I've made, the consequences I faced. And so doing it in an open and public platform where I get to blend. And again, this is a, a term that I phrase my wisdom learned and earned where I get to take my life experience and I get to share it in a way where I take the tools that I've also learned about understanding humans, struggles, challenges, suffering, and make their confusing, messy stories and start to pull apart the pieces so they can understand that it's not just a single question. It's a single question that's nuanced with all of these parts. And when we start to pull apart the individual parts, I think it helps people have a better understanding. And when I share from my personal experience, and this is something I learned from, learned from the rooms of, uh, of AA and SAA, is you never tell anybody their experience. You always share from your own personal experience. And I always say, yeah, well, in my experience, I've done it. In my experience, I've had moments like this. And start to do that in an open public uh, forum, Dear John MD became this space where I could, we could share uh, um, uh, video content on TikTok, some reels on Instagram, snippets of long format content. But really, the majority of my, my long form content lies on DearJohnMD.com, which is my website where I sort of put all of the, the information together. And so it really was born out of this, this need to creatively express and then became this opportunity to share intimate parts with me and hope that others would find healing and opportunity to share the intimate parts with themselves. Nice. I love it. You know, and that's, that's largely what this podcast has uh, sort of been for me too. The way I archive uh, my thought and my own journey as I'm, you know, interviewing and archiving these wonderful conversations I have with excellent people. Um, so you talk about sharing vulnerabilities, and I think that's a really good segue into something that I've been dying to talk to you about, which is uh, jujitsu. And, um, you know, what I can't find a better place than the jujitsu mat to share your vulnerabilities with other human beings and to discover for yourself what your own vulnerabilities are, not just physical vulnerabilities, that's definitely part of it, but what are your emotional vulnerabilities? What sort of emotions uh, come up for you when you find yourself in challenging situations on the mat that uh, force you to make that choice, right? That choice to be reactive and, and mm. probably uh, make a misstep, which gets, uh, gets troublesome. Or do you choose to slow down, take your time, take a breath, and work your way out of the problem that, that you're facing um, with all these vulnerable pieces mixed in there. So um, yeah, so we met, like, like you said, uh, early spring last year, and you were, you were really interested in jujitsu, and we talked about it, and then when you got home, you started up, and uh, you know, you're giving me little reports here and there about how you were enjoying it, and yeah, I just want to hear from you about, you know, what has your journey been like so far? Uh, what have you learned uh, not only, you know, about jujitsu and the art itself, but what has the art taught you about yourself uh, in such a, a short amount of time? It's interesting. It's, it's, yeah, when I first met you, I was jujitsu curious. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it wasn't the first time I had a, a friend that I attended Hoffman, who I think was a brown belt and acquired his black belt uh, in jujitsu. 
And it was something that always sort of like just en enamored me and made me, I was curious. And so I ended up starting in the, in the summer and, and I didn't know anything. And I've always been an athlete. I trained in boxing. There's a period of time where I trained Muay Thai. And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a martial artist by any sense, but I love, I'm definitely an athlete in that I love challenging my body. And I love challenging my mind. And jujitsu was so unique because I knew absolutely nothing about it. I never wrestled. I, you know, apart from like sort of, with, you know, your guy friends, you're like pushing each other around and start, you know, you're on, you're on the ground. But to sort of learn, um, there are many pieces that I love about it. One, there is the respect of the lineage, right? And so the, the traditions that are born from, from Brazil in this, in this uh, studio that I was training at, you, you pay homage to the respect of the lineages that come, which I absolutely love. So there's already a sense of sort of sacredness and ritual to it. I love the the discipline of, you know, when you enter the mat, you, you know, you, you bow and you, you enter the mat and you, when you leave the mat, you do the same and you, you shake the hand of the professor and you train and you warm up. There's something that sort of feels uh, collective and connected. And then, you know, you start learning technique and, you know, like the first time I'm there, I learned one technique and then I'm expected to roll on the mat with somebody. It's just like, I only know one tool. Like I've, you know, so like part of it is just survival strategy. And you recognize, like for me, I realized that like, I was like a wild animal when I first started, you know, I was just like doing anything that I could possibly think of to the maximum effort to just survive. And, and it was with a little bit of guidance there, you know, that they finally told me like, just work on passing guard. You don't have to do all this other stuff, just pass guard. So then I started working on passing guard and I started getting good at that. And then I started remembering the moves. And so this is where I started to blend my, my intellect with, with strategy, but I would lose that intellect if I got too flustered, right? It's really hard to think when you have somebody's elbow on your throat mm -hmm. or they're choking you out from behind. All you think about is like, fuck, get me out of here. So I started to, to realize that the more composed that I could be and the, and the more I could slow down the more options I had. And, and you, you know, like I'm very new to jujitsu and I've been choked out and tapped out a lot. And I would say that in any one of those times, I never got angry. I never got angry when I, I it actually was a, a complete state of humility and gratitude. Mm. You know, I, I think, God, that was so good. You know, like, I can't believe you got, you know, I'd give gratitude to them. I'd humbly look to, okay, well, what could I do better next time? You know, when I, when I rolled this way, I exposed my back, you know, and it, and it makes you just think and be extremely present to the choices that you're making. And, and one of the other things that, that I also noticed was the, the more I trained and the more, the more skills I got, the harder I was able to roll with others. And so when I was rolling with others, and especially there was this one dude, his name was Luke. He was, he was probably like six, five and, and 220 pounds and I'm five ten and 170. So when he was on top of me, it was not a pleasant experience, but when he was cutting guard or he was passing and he put his knee on my chest, like I started to have these like aches and pains and there was a part of me that pushed through it. And so I got more aches and pains. And then there's finally a moment where I'm like, I have to trust that my body is telling me something here. 
And so I would, I took time off to heal. And so, so really getting attuned and listening to my body and not sort of pushing it to the point where I was just pursuing it for the, the, the fervor of getting better and better and better. Like I was doing myself a disservice because I wasn't honoring my body to rest and then, and then go back. So in the, in a little bit of time, because we're here in November, I started, I think in June or July in the little bit of time I've been doing it, I have found that it is one of the most challenging and rewarding um, practices that I've, I've ever engaged in. Yeah. And the way you were describing it, um, you know, having hyper-focus reminded me of what you were describing earlier about when you're in a surgery theater, you know, and you're in that flow state, you know, four hours pass by in 15 minutes, you know, but uh, the more you're in the moment, the more choice you have, the more, um, the more opportunity for solving the problem that's in front of you, right? If you're distracted, if you're on the mat or in, or doing surgery and your mind is elsewhere, your, uh, your choice goes out the window, you know, sometimes. So, yeah. And I also, I also love how you described, um, you know, those, the bigger challenges, right? People sitting on you and, and having to, <laughs> having to have to keep your cool in that situation, right? Where you're, when your instincts are telling you like flail and, and, uh, you know, scream for bloody murder and try and run away, you know, just overriding those systems, those automatic systems and, and gaining that, that mental control over the body, uh, I think is, is huge. Right. And it, and it translates, so well outside of the gym, right? For people who aren't yeah. used to doing that, and then they learn that through jujitsu, that that self control, the discipline, uh, learning how to pause uh, when agitated and make a choice as opposed to uh, just reacting out of automaticity. Like I think that's that's such a great uh, skill to be able to pick up. And you know, I'm I'm really excited for you to to continue and and to get on to the next level. Also, another great um, lesson that you brought up too was really uh jujitsu hopefully uh well it will teach you how to balance um work and rest right yeah uh, because b- before i got into it, and even early in my uh martial arts in my jujitsu career it was all about how much can i produce on the mat like go 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 mm-hmm. go train six seven days a week and i can't do that anymore you know um multiple surgeries like i said like i'm, I'm almost 40 and uh, my body just does not allow me to train hard every single day. So if I want to train and do live rounds, I have to limit myself to once, maybe twice a week to do live stuff. And the rest of the week is just drills and flow movements and flexibility and things like that. So it's definitely taught me a lot about the balance um, and finding that balance between rest and workload uh, really does enhance the, the product that you do put out, you know, um, Whereas if you're just working, 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 the the um, yeah, whatever you produce is is less in quality than it would be if you get that rest. So I can't tell you how many lessons I've gotten from jujitsu. It's definitely my greatest teacher. It's been my greatest opportunity for uh, ego death experiences uh, on a daily basis. You know, you can experience fifty in in a period of an hour, um, and it meshes so well for me. Um, with my, you know, my, my spiritual practices, whether it be Buddhism, Hinduism, Native American, shamanism, whatever, as well as um, my psychedelic work, you know, and, and the internal work that I'm doing there is, is just enhanced that much more with my jujitsu practice. And that's sort of how I um, bring a lot of my spiritual practice and, and make it 
physical, you know, bring it into an embodied place. Um, because oftentimes when I'm thinking about consciousness or or mystical things, like my head is way up here in the clouds, you know, and, and I need to mm-hmm. find ways to bring it back down into the body and, and live an embodied sense of mysticism. Um, and that's what Jiu-Jitsu helps me with. Anyway, I've been, you know, doing it forever and it's, I love it. It becomes a lifestyle too, you know, and I think you're going to love that. Uh, you'll, you'll start changing other parts of your life just to make your jujitsu better, right? You'll start eating better, start cross training, or, you know, you'll start going to bed early just so you can train better the next day. And um, yeah, it really is fantastic. So what has been your favorite, uh, your favorite drill or your favorite technique that you've learned so far? Um, well, I was really, you know, like I've watched MMA before. So the first time I learned a Kimura and like actually how to do it was pretty awesome. I would say that, um, the, the technique I've used the most and I've been able to, to implement the most that's been successful is, is putting people in an arm bar, but in a way where you, you wrap your, your leg around the chest and your other around the head, and then you, you know, you pelvic thrust out being able to translate that from multiple sort of situations. So, so it's easy when they're on their back and you, you take their arm, but when they're, you know, on all fours and you do it in a way where you roll them and you then have their arm, you know, like that to me was sort of the most fun um, maneuver that I was able to, to execute with, you know, a marginal degree of success. And again, marginal because it's still very new. And these guys that are skilled, you know, even one belt ahead of me, that represents countless of hours of their own drills and discipline. And so, you know, like as much as I was proud for the moments that I had and the successes that I had, it was also acknowledging that somebody's worked just as hard to get their stripes and belts and, you know, and whatnot. So I would say that one of the other coolest things about jujitsu and and honestly, any, any sort of um, competitive uh, sport has been body awareness and jujitsu teaches it like no other, you know, you're here with your hand and you're, you're approaching and you're approaching and you're approaching and you're not paying attention to your left hand. Next thing you know, your left hand's gone and it's wrapped and it's about to get, you know, snapped off. Not literally, but, you know, and so, so it teaches you to be mindful of your, your body awareness and your, and where you are in space and, and how you're presenting yourself. And are you in a offensive position? Or are you in a defensive position? So really being mindful and, and sort of like most, most moments in my life, where I've been out of alignment, I have found that my highest output and productivity, not from a producing standpoint, but just from a, a, uh, in alignment with spirit and purpose and meaning is when my, my head, my heart and my gut instincts, my intuition are all in alignment. And, and I, as any sort of athlete knows, or any sort of competitor knows, or somebody who's, who likes to show up and has pride in their work, if your heart and your emotions get the better of you, and your, your head goes, your body's going to follow. So the minute you've given up because you're, you're emotionally frustrated and angry and your, your brain gives up, your body's going to follow. It doesn't matter what you do. And it's funny having young kids because I teach them this in sports, right? You know, I have a daughter who's in volleyball, um, another who unfortunately had an ACL uh, injury in her soccer, and then two young boys that play different sports. Um, my son is just starting soccer. My youngest son is just starting soccer, but isn't in the competitive realm yet. 
but I always relay, you know, what Phil Jackson does with the Laker, what he did with the Bulls and the Lakers. You know, he doesn't call a timeout when they're falling apart. He makes them play through and actively recover so they can get back into alignment. Then he'll call his timeout. And I love that idea. You know, like you want to take yourself out of the game, you're going to take yourself out of the game because your mind's going to go. But teaching, you know, these young kids to, to, to learn to adapt on the fly, to actively recover and put themselves in a position to succeed is, is sort of the beauty of sports and especially with the individual sports. Beautiful. Yeah, I think we've come around full circle and uh, we're back to talking about, you know, the alignment of mind, heart, and now gut too, bringing it all in alignment. Um, well, I want to be uh, respectful of our time and I want to say thank you, uh, John, for joining me today on the show. It has been amazing to talk to you in such such a lengthy capacity. I really appreciated our shorter conversations, um, you know, last spring. And uh, this has been really an honor uh, to be able to talk to you about all sorts of different topics. And thank you for being so open with your experience. It's been extremely helpful to me. And I know it will be as well to some of the listeners out there too. Thank you, Shane. I really appreciate it. Number one, for the opportunity to connect and obviously for the opportunity for us to share experience and hold space for one another. So thank you. Yeah, more in the future. All right. Absolutely. That has been uh, Conversations with the Mind. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Man, what an amazing show. Thank you so much, Dr. John, for coming on the show today. I hope to have you back on uh, a number of times in the future. Um, yeah, we just have such good conversations. And, uh, you know, I, I know we've only met once uh you know over an extended weekend uh during that training but i am super stoked to continue to build uh this friendship with you so thank you so much for coming on the show thank you to all you listeners who are out there uh in the wild wild west of uh war and the metaverse and uh cancel culture and all these things going on uh how are you doing it how you st- how you stay in here? Uh, I want to know. So contact us on the website, uh, www.mind-ops.com. You guys can reach out to me on that website as well through the Contact Us page. Check out our YouTube if you haven't already, where you can find all these videos for the podcast. That's M-I-N-D-O-P-S, YouTube. Please like and share on social media. It just takes a second, folks, and it helps so much. We need to try and trick that algorithm, try and uh, get this on more people's news feeds. So on social media, like and share it. Please tag some friends. Do what you can. Spread the word. If you've ever had conversations like these uh, with other people in your life, please share these podcasts with those people. Uh, if, you've, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe uh, and like us there and hit the notification bell so that you know when we are premiering new videos. All right. Thank you so much for being here for episode 104. This is Shane, your host, signing off. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, 
and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.